The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked, no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond. And last week we talked about chocolate. And this week we're talking about sexuality, all in honor of Valentine's Day. Particularly today, I have an incredible expert. Um, I want to talk about sex today. So if you have any young ears hanging around, this is an adult-only hour today. And put those earphones on because we know with children, the word sex alone makes them very eager and curious to know more. And again, this is adults-only. Before I introduce Dr. Patty Britton, I did want to share this very beautiful poem. I was doing my own research around the whole idea of sex and sexuality, and I found this poem by E.E. Cummings, one of my favorite poets, and I'm going to read it to you because it's a great way to get in the mood for today's show. I like my body when it is with your body. It is so quite new a thing, muscles better and nerves more. I like your body. I like what it does. I like its hows. I like to feel the spine of your body and its bones and the trembling, firm smoothness and which I will again and again and again kiss. I like kissing this and that of you. I like slowly stroking the shocking fuzz of your electric fur. And what is it comes over parting flesh? and eyes big love crumbs, and possibly, I like the thrill of under me, you, so quite new. That's E.E. Cummings, and I have today such a special guest, Dr. Patty Britton is a PhD, she's a clinical sexologist, educator, and the pioneer of sex coaching with top-level credentials. As a well-respected world leader in the field of sexology, she is the author of hundreds of articles, four amazing books, and is a former columnist for Penthouse Forum. Dr. Petty is a popular public speaker, a sought-after trainer, and a workshop leader. She blogs on her own websites and hosts over 40 DVDs for women's and couples' sexual enhancement. 
Her media record includes appearances on national television, live talk and news radio, and she is frequently quoted in magazines such as Cosmopolitan, Men's Health, Women's Health, Glamour, Men's Fitness, and WebMD. Dr. Patty has a private practice in Los Angeles and via Skype globally. She is the co-founder of Sex Coach U, the world's premier credentialing and training institute for sex coaching. Welcome, Dr. Patty, to the show. Thank you, Laura. I'm so excited to be here talking about our favorite topic other than chocolates. <laughs> well, you know, I need help because I'm a midlife woman. I'm 55 in a few weeks. And one of the things I really want your help with today, and I know this must be true for many of our listeners, is just what to do with our sexuality in midlife if it feels dull and we're not really interested in hormone replacement or supplements. Um I want to get into it with you because I've heard all the medical comments about these different things you can do to enhance your moisture and the pain factor of the vaginal walls, which become, I understand, thickened with menopause and after menopause. But I honestly think sex is so mental, and I believe there's a great connection to what happens mentally that does affect then the sexual body. So just as an opener, tell me what you're feeling and thinking based on what I just said. Well, if we had about six hours, I could adequately answer your question. Um, this is such a big issue because whether you're in the baby boomer generation or you're not and you're looking at that midlife phase of your life as a woman in particular, there are so many factors that really play into how you feel about yourself. And the reality is it comes home to how do I feel about me? And what I observe in my clinical practice and as I train people all around the world to become experts in sexology, what I notice is that if you don't really know yourself and you don't have a positive relationship with yourself, you're not going to be able to have a positive sexual or intimate or connected erotic relationship with anybody else. And so many people, especially women, suffer from negative body image issues. And I I think you might be surprised at how sometimes as older women, and I'm quite a bit older than you, um, but having gone through that perimenopausal phase or that midlife phase, slightly after midlife for many, where you're getting ready for that uh, hallmark, or I, I should say, you know, in many ways that turning point of no longer being able to menstruate, known as menopause, which is deemed to be that time one year after your last menstrual period. Before you get there, you go through this really tough phase for a lot of women called the perimenopause. It's a shifting time. It's a time when our estrogen and our progesterone and our testosterone and other major hormones begin to shift and our sexual hormones, predominantly for women, estrogen and progesterone and testosterone go on a decline. And that's why there's a a sense of the changing self for women. And in some ways, I'll tell you, Laura, that there's a sense of betrayal of our bodies 
I find that for many of the women that I work with as clients or that I mentor as their supervisor who are dealing with their own story and their own journey as they serve others, it's that sense of my body isn't looking or it isn't doing what it used to and I'm, I'm either dealing with the loss of that or I'm angry at my body or I'm feeling the worst feeling of all, which is toxic shame, which we can spend the day talking about. But, you know, there are specific things that the body goes through as women age. Men have their own story. And one of those is an increase in pain upon sexual penetration, penis and vagina sex. And the reason is that you were on the right topic, but you had it a little bit backwards. The vaginal walls actually thin. They don't thicken. And so because they thin... It's the lining of the vaginal canal is actually more vulnerable. It's more vulnerable to sensations that feel like tearing, and there's an ouch factor. And that can particularly happen at the beginning or the introitus or the entry to the vagina where it's just that tissue becomes raw and and penetrative sex becomes really a negative experience. And then what happens is there also is a decline in the output of our natural vaginal and cervical secretions so that there isn't that slidey-glidey feeling and actual state of our genitals where our body does what it's supposed to do, which is make it possible to engage in the biological function of penis and vagina sex. Now, of course, there's so much more to sex than penis and vagina. Whether you're same-sex or heterosexually oriented, sex is so much more than the mechanics of those body parts. And and so maybe we could talk about that. I'll, I'll let you ask me a few questions about what I just said. Yeah, because here's the thing. I love my body. Like, I love my body. And for me, there is such expression in my physical form. Um, And I'm just wondering, like, so in other words, it's not a self-esteem issue personally for me. I know it is for many women. And it's not a a shame issue for me, as, as I know it is for many women. But what I have to say to you is that, I'd rather dance than have sex. I'd rather mm-hmm. read poetry, E.E. E. Cummings, than have sex. And I wonder if I just have a very low sex drive that may be enhanced by aging. Certainly the pain factor you speak about with the penetration, I experienced it personally, and I didn't even know the vaginal walls thin. I I got it wrong, said they were thick, they're thin. But that pain factor to me was such a turnoff that I just didn't even want to do it ever again. And so I'm trying to figure out how to awaken erotica within my soul and my body when, honestly, I'd rather be painting, dancing, reading poetry. Sure. Well, you're not alone. Uh, I mean, I think this is the norm, especially if there's the medical term that we use called dyspareunia or vulvodynia or many other terms that really relate to genital or pelvic or sexually related pain disorders. And because I have the good fortune of being centered here in Los Angeles, I actually refer many of the women that I work with who have some sort of sexually related pain to go to a well-trained, sexually oriented physical therapist. Mm 
I have a wonderful woman in L.A. that I refer to who is trained and, and so smart and way beyond, here's the sad news, way beyond most gynecologists because one of the sad parts about sexuality and sexual wellness is that most MDs, and I know we're talking to an international audience, so maybe where you're listening, you do have a great GYN or OBGYN or medical provider who is well-trained in sexuality and feels comfortable enough in opening even a conversation about sex and sexual function. But the reality is that most medical doctors don't open a conversation about sex. What they, what they are serving are the pathologizing aspects of being a woman or being someone who is, is sexual with a disorder or a disease or a pain issue. And the, the truth is that when it comes to desire, and you're talking about the, the number one issue that affects women, and I'll tell you it's also <laughs> escalating to affecting men as well, is low or no desire called hypoactive um, desire disorder if we're going to put it in a kind of medical jargon. I look at it as low desire. And what happens is the whole self is involved. So when you speak about you'd rather be dancing or painting or reading E.E. Cummings, which is a hilarious pun if you think about it as we're talking about sex, um, the, the truth is that our desire actually in the in the framework that I use and many of my fellow trained sexologists who are experts in sexuality use is that our desire emanates from our mind. And so how we think, what we think, how we view ourselves, how we look at something like expressing our eroticism comes out of our thinking. Our thinking becomes the dominant force that in some schools of thought affects our feeling and then our behavior. And the, the reality is that if you have pain, pain is aversive. And it's natural that as human beings, we go toward pleasure and we run away from pain. That's just hardwired in us as animals. So for you, as you speak about having sexual pain and then not having desire, you'd rather be, you know, making sandcastles at the beach. The, the reality is that that's a natural response to something that is supposed to be pleasurable but becomes not pleasurable. Does that make sense? Oh, totally, totally. So let's go about, let, let's think about that hard wiring. If you are wanting to become more erotically awakened, whether, and you said it beautifully, it's not, you know, penetration is such a small factor in the sexual dance between two bodies, but just to up that erotic factor, what would be a takeaway tool that you would give to all of us to, to do that? Well, I'm a big proponent, and I've actually written five books. One of them is The Complete Idiot's Guide to Sensual Massage, which is out of print but available online at Amazon, etc., as a recycled book, and it was a really good book. But the truth is that we have to uh, honor and understand that we're physical beings and that we're so much more than that. But as a physical being... As someone who occupies a human body, we have to evoke and open up our senses. So anything that can evoke or open up our senses, whether it's our sight or whether it's our hearing or whether it's taste or smell or especially touch is going to have a dramatic impact on opening us up 
to pleasure. Now, eroticism is a little bit different from sex, and I like to define it in this way. Eroticism is what turns us on, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's sexual. We can be erotically awakened and feel this energy, this raw kind of juicy energy running through us, by walking on a beach or looking at a sunset or listening to Adele sing Hello, which <laughs> to me is a very pleasant song, but, you know, it may evoke something in someone else. So I think we have to look at the sensual side of ourselves, but we also have to awaken back to the mind. When I said desire begins in the mind, it actually does begin in the mind. And one of the things that I'm a big fan of is giving permission, one of the key words in sex coaching and in my work as a clinical sexologist and sexuality educator, is giving permission to my clients, giving permission to my students or trainees. And we have to learn as individuals to give ourselves permission, permission to grow, permission to explore, permission to expand, to experiment. So what might turn us on might be a show on alternative TV or on the Internet, on Hulu. What might turn us on might be reading love poems from E.E. Cummings or even more edgy material that is like a la Fifty Shades of Grey done well or anything that can evoke a response of, ooh, that might turn me on or that does turn me on because being erotic means you're being awakened to being turned on. Mm. I want to go back to what you're saying about awakening and this massage idea spoke to me. So tell us a little bit about this book you wrote and the massage technique um, that would be an example of how this can help to awaken that part of our soul self. Well, the book is entitled The Complete Idiot's Guide to Sensual Massage. And mm-hmm. and my co-author and I really fought against that title because it really should be a book about sensual touch and sensual awakening. And because massage has such a connotation of therapeutic, we have to move away from that and look at pleasure. Pleasure is the key. Pleasure is the goal. Pleasure is the journey that we're on when we're really opening ourselves up to sex. It may also be about connection, which is a word I hear a lot from my women clients. It may be about many things because sex and our eroticism has many, many, many layers and many, many meanings for what it brings to our lives. But when we talk about sensual massage, what we're talking about is not having to go to massage school and get licensed to know how to push the pressure points, which are good, that's okay, but rather to learn how to create pleasure and response in another human's body. And so there are basic techniques that are in the book, which I'm not going to teach on this call today, but the idea behind them is that we need to really caress a partner. And I think that that's one of the keys to Hmm. successful sexual engagement with someone else anyway is to learn how to slow down. Caressing is not a rushing touch. Caressing Hmm. is not a deep pushing on the trapezius muscle at the top of the back so that you can release the tension that's held there, which most of us carry. It's actually about allowing someone to relax. Here's the thing about sex, the secret about sex, 
is that sex can only really successfully take place in a body that's relaxed. But at the same time, sex takes place as we build tension toward the orgasmic release. It doesn't mean that's the goal. Sometimes the goal is just to be touched. Sometimes the goal is just to hang out with someone you care for. Sometimes the goal is just to play like dolphins or kittens playing with each other. But (laughs) caressing is a a gentle form of exchange of touch, hand on skin of someone else. And it's slow and it's intentional and it glides. It doesn't like jerk. It doesn't push deeply. It's not biting or scratching, although that can be good too because it depends what turns you on, what gets your erotic energy flowing. But I'm really talking about using all of our senses to awaken ourselves in our bodies and using a caressing kind of stroke on our partner to create pleasure and relaxation. Does that make Mm. sense? Oh, that's beautifully explained. And maybe what you just made me think about, which was very hopeful, is as you get to know another body well, it's sort of the opposite of the one-night stand in that maybe you can learn even more creative, thoughtful, loving ways to caress your long-term loved one. Because that's the other thing I hear a lot from women in particular is they've been with that partner for so long that there's almost been a, um, I don't want to call it a boredom factor, but there is a, there's a lack of vitality that is even of interest to continue to explore. And you're making me think that there could be an infinite road to exploring a partner through these different ways of relaxing together that maybe gets more beautiful with longevity. What, what would you say about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. And what happens is there's a factor that I coin as SSGD, same stuff, different day, and it becomes <laughs> routinized. It becomes boring. It becomes habitual and disconnected. It's the mechanical kind of... There, there are two kinds of sex that are the worst kinds of sex. One is duty or obligation sex. The other is mechanical sex, where you're going through the motions but you're not there. And when your producer was introducing you or whomever beautiful voice was giving the overview of your show, there were three things that were spoken about you and your approach. One is embodied, the other is empowered, and the third is mindful. And we're really talking about being embodied and mindful. Empowered is great, and I'm all about that. But The idea of being mindful, which is where our eroticism really flows from, that mindful state, that mindfulness, being present, which is something that very few people are today on electronic devices, and being embodied, which means that you're neck down. You're you're really in yourself. You're really there, and you're feeling through your body and its infinite capacity for pleasure and for energy to flow. And so there's something so important about going beyond the mechanics and this SSDD factor or syndrome so that it's fresh and new and you're an explorer and every time you're an explorer. And the truth is, this is going to sound a little strange perhaps to you, but the truth is that for most women in order to experience their orgasm. They need to have their partner or themselves, but I'm really focusing on partner sex right now. They really need to have their partner 
find their groove and not stop to get them to that orgasmic release, which isn't always the goal, but can be the goal. And at the same time, there is a need for changing it up. <laughs> because if we know what's coming next, if we know what to expect, if we know, oh, she's going to do that, and then that, then that, and then, oh, yeah, here we go with that, you're, you're, you're not mindful. You're actually in a mental overviewing state where you're in sexology. We have a, a, a term called spectatoring. So you're actually above yourself looking at what's going on. You're not in it. You're not present. Mm. You're not experiencing. You're just kind of sitting there with your arms folded over your chest and a kind of frown on your face going, oh, yeah, there's my partner doing that again. And I always say, stop. I don't like you doing that. I want you to go over here, blah, 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 all that. So that, that need to be an explorer and fresh each time is part of the joy of being in a long-term committed sexual or erotic relationship. And few couples get to allocate or prioritize the time and the focused intention on that. Mm. Well, you said the word explorer, and I think one of the great mysteries for men and women when they're heterosexually sexual is that the male genitalia is is beautiful and it's it's what it is but it's not as mysterious as the female genitalia and i think one of the ways that i've learned a lot from women about their frustration is a lot of times the male does not have a clue how to explore that part of the female body. So when you're working with couples, what are some ways to help that mysterious female genitalia? Because between the clitoris, the G-spot, the vagina, there's so many areas that are erotic and stimulated and worth exploring, but they're often, I think, ignored. Well, I'm going to take issue with what you're saying, Um, and here's why. I I think as we're speaking to men and women on your show, there's mystery about all of our anatomy. There's mystery about men's penises and their their testes and their scrotal sacs and their anuses and, and, and the... The, the regions that surround the genitals or the inner thighs, there's a mystery other than the fact that men are out, outies <laughs> and women are innies. Um, there's a mystery about wanting to, to, to navigate and really understand and know another person's body in that intimate way because it's our most vulnerable part of our body, even for men. And I have tremendous compassion for men. I have a lot of clients who are women. I used to specialize in women. I actually am a specialized generalist in a sense. My clients range from um, one of my favorite types is the virgin man who's in his 40s or 50s and has never been touched, kissed, or had sex. And women who are having orgasmic difficulties or sexual pain disorders and especially couples who are sexless, which is the pandemic of our times and has been since 2002 when the term was coined by USA Today, believe it or not. So I think there's a, there's a fear, there's a nervousness, there's a, a delicate kind of, ooh, I don't know if I'm doing this right, that both men and women feel, heterosexual women and men feel, in approaching each other's most private part. 
So I, I just want to say that to your listeners so that we give equal merit to that exploration of each other. At the same time, women are hidden. Our genitals are hidden. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of fear. I think a, a lot of men have fear about how to approach a woman and what to do and how to turn her on and how to get her to that high state of arousal, the plateau phase, or to her orgasm, or to just, you know, multiple, multiple orgasm, rounding, I call it, you know, over and over and over and over. And, and of course, the, you know, the, the, the mythological, for some people, eternal chase for the simultaneous orgasm, um, which is a pressure that a lot of couples put on themselves that's really silly because... Both men and women are capable of multiple orgasms, and that's why sex coaching is so important because we actually teach in our talk-only style how to really be a good lover. We're not taught that in most places, and so a lot of the work we do in sex coaching is redefining and retraining and re-educating people on how to find their own pleasure, how to know their own bodies, and how to share that with a partner. And that's what I do with couples when you ask about the mystery and exploring that. I, I think one of the exercises that's one of my favorites is having a genital show and tell and having mm. both partners not only know their own sexual anatomy by looking in a mirror, which is something that not a lot of women do naturally unless they know someone like me or Betty Dodson or some other sex coaches or sexologists around the world, but really being willing to look at yourself, know yourself, claim yourself with love and honoring and respect. And and not everybody is going to follow my kind of... Uh, energy or vibration around it, but I, I think it's sacred. And I think that looking at that innermost private part of ourselves, on the physical level that is, our sexual anatomy can be a sacred act and it can be a fun and even funny act. Betty Dodson is one of my friends and one of my mentors and her website is dodsonandloss.com and I send most of my students and some of my clients to download her videos, which are great educational videos, explicit teaching about how to experience an orgasm, how to find your whatever part of your sexual anatomy. One of her programs is Viva La Vulva, which is such a great title. And it was a, a you know a program shot of, around a, a self viewing with a group of women in a circle, and understanding you know oh this is where my oh this is where my clitoris is wow oh wow the clitoris has these things called quora which are really arousable legs that are internal we have like an internal penis flapped inside the pelvic region we have humongous capacity for sensation and pleasure and potential for orgasm because of our internal clitoral structure but of course we can't really see that in a general show and tell you just need to know about that and so Mm -hmm. learning how our bodies work really starts with us It's very important that anyone listening understands that you need to know your own body and you need to know your own response. You need to know how do you produce an orgasm for yourself. 
what is your body like? What do you like? What, what positions do you like to be in if you're solo sexing versus if you're with a partner and what do you like and what do you don't like? Having conversations. The greatest deficit I see among couples, whether they're a one-night stand or 20,000 years together, is that they don't talk about sex. Communication is a much bigger deficit than any other aspect of sex. So talking about what do you want, what do you need, what do you like, what do you not like, having those conversations not during sex on the bed ever, 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 because the Mm. pressure cooker is going to be there and you're not going to be in your kind of relaxed mind, but knowing how to express your desires to your partner. This is really a critical piece that is often missing in the couple dynamic. So are you inviting the thought that, let's say you want to have that conversation with your lover, you would do it over coffee or a meal, don't do it when you're trying to become aroused or sexually active? Correct. I'm not a big fan of while sex is happening, having the conversation about how do I really like you to do it. Both men and women have very fragile egos when it comes to, as we were talking earlier about the mysteries of the sexual landscape, it's a a delicate place to go on both types of bodies. (laughs) You know, uh, biological males and biological females, or as we say, cisgendered males or cisgendered females. And so... Taking it out of the bedroom, out of the heat of the moment is really important. I'm I'm not saying that it should be over a meal. I think meals are a really bad place to have uh, delicate or intimate or emotional conversations because if we become upset as we're eating, we actually can poison ourselves with the chemicals that our body produces in that flight or fight syndrome. And wow. it can actually create an upset stomach. Similar to if a couple are planning a sex night, a sex date that evening, don't go out and eat like two bowls of spaghetti marinara with meatballs <laughs> and, you know, drink a bottle of red wine. <laughs> Each of you, you want to keep light in terms okay. of what your physicality can accommodate. So, okay. you know, I, I think it's very important when couples first meet and that one of the sad things in, in the American culture today, and it has been this way for a while, is that our children are not taught comprehensive sexuality education. They're not taught the truth. They're not taught the facts. And they're certainly not taught how to talk about sex adequately, how to communicate what they want, how to look at sex as a positive aspect of being human and how to prevent, you know, unwanted results such as an unwanted or unintended pregnancy or getting an STI, a sexually transmissible infection or disease. But the bad news is the only thing that is usually taught um, in our school system and kids really have a right to know about sexuality from a comprehensive point of view so that they can make good decisions, inform choices, and be responsible. Doesn't and that what make age, sense? Totally. So what age do you advise that sort of dialogue to start? When do you think that's useful and constructive and helpful? When the first question emerges, here's the thing. When, many years ago, I used to work at the National Office of Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood Federation of America. With great pride, I say this. And 
it, it has been a very pivotal organization in providing women's sexual health care and comprehensive sexuality education through workshops for teens and, and for parents. One of the wonderful programs was parents as the primary sexuality educators of their children because parents are, whether they consciously give that education or not, by their very behavior that they exhibit in front of their children, they're, they're being sex educators. So there's this thing in, in sex education we call the teachable moments. If little Johnny says, you know, what's up, fill in the blank, like um, the Bill Clinton incident with Monica Lewinsky provoked a lot of great parent-child communication about sexuality <laughs> because, you know, little boys are saying, that's a blow job. Well, we've also kind of uh, timed down how savvy children are because of the Internet. There are, to me, horror stories about mid- middle school children on school buses giving token blowjobs for popularity without a consciousness about A, risk of health, and B, that this has any connection to sexuality. So being askable as a parent is essential. And those questions can come up as soon as a child is able to express a question. Always have an answer for the question. There are great books that have been written about how to be a great askable parent. One of the authors who um, is a colleague of mine is Deborah Hafner, H-A-F-F-N-E-R, has written, I think, From Diapers to Dating is one of her books. And also Planned Parenthood has great information on their website. But when I was back in New York in the 1990s, I also worked for the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, known as SICUS. They're located at siecus.org, and they produced the first guidelines for comprehensive sexuality education, K through 12, with what should be taught at that level. And those resources are available online by going to seekus.org and by Googling comprehensive sex ed guidelines to anyone in the world. Well, and I'm sure this is putting you on the spot, but let's go back to that. Little Johnny says, what is a blowjob? I mean, how much detail, and I guess it depends on little Johnny's age, but, you know, let's, you know, yeah, like, I mean, let, let's say, let's say he's 14, 15, and he says, what is a blowjob? What, do you actually then explain that's when a mouth goes on top of your penis? I mean, I guess there are ways you do it, it depends, and, and I'm going to tell you how and why it depends. It depends because it has to do so much with the family's values. So okay. part of our role as sexologists is never to debate or um, insult or confront another person's values and impose our own value system on them. And let's say that this is a very liberal family. Let's say Johnny is six. And in, let's say, let's say first grade, and this comes up because it's all over the news, or, you know, Anthony Weiner has sexted yet another picture of his penis, and it's all over the news, that type of thing. And so answering it in just enough information to respect the question is how you handle this. Mm. So it may be, you know, 
it's it's a way if it's about mommy and daddy for example you know it's a way for mommy and daddy to show how much they love each other that might be a response not to what is a blowjob but to the common questions that come out and it may be just giving a very simple answer that is in harmony with the family's values that gives just enough so that the question is honored but it isn't a lecture for one hour, and it doesn't go into detail about, well, you know, the lips go on the corona of the penis, and the penis is erect, and after he gets an erection, a little pre-ejaculate is coming out, so you have to be careful, and you don't want to get your, t- you know, like how I would how I would teach someone how to give a good blowjob is not how you're going to give that answer. Got that, it, that got help? it. That's so helpful. So in that same vein, um, I've heard this a lot from mothers who get concerned because their three- and four-year-old daughter is masturbating constantly. Um, (laughs) And she's found her joy spot, and they want it to stop, and they have to say to the child, no. So let's go there for a minute. What do you do if you have a daughter that's found her joy spot and she's masturbating constantly and she's tiny little baby girl what is the best way to handle that well usually this is my opinion so i'm not the author of any books on this subject and because you didn't ask me this in advance i didn't rehearse how i would respond to this so off the cuff often the answer is again never shame the behavior so yeah. not freaking out, not shaming the behavior. Oh, my God, you're touching there. Oh, oh, God, that's disgusting. But rather saying, you know, I see that you're enjoying yourself. This is the kind of thing we do in the privacy of our own room. So if you want to have this experience, you wouldn't say it in quite that way. You know, if you want to do that, I'd like you to go to your room and close the door. Mm, and not making, it, not making a huge issue out of it because it's when we make something a no-no that it's going to be more longed for, right? Yep. And we want to be so mindful, getting back to mindfulness, as parents, as educators, as clinicians, um, as friends, as lovers. <laughs> a squirrel just appeared in my window. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I love that. Mommy squirrel that we want to be so mindful that we don't shame. Toxic shame is the base of most sexual issues, concerns, problems, breakdowns. And it starts so early, and then we just layer and layer and layer more messaging. That's about shaming our little girls, our little boys, until it's inculcated in the self. And then they have to spend thousands of dollars working with people like me to help really reduce, if not eliminate, that shame, which we use a lot of techniques to do. But shame is really the culprit. So as parents, we really need to be very careful not to be shaming our children about what is natural for them. What is Now, there's there's another dimension to what you're talking about. You want me to jump into it? Yes, please. So here's the other dimension. There are also are warning signs for when a child has experienced a form of sexual abuse or molestation or um, unwanted touch, I'm going to call it. And this is a whole field of clinical science. And sometimes children who are precocious, who are are simulating sexual intercourse, for example, or 
who are overly active in terms of self-stimulation, that can be a warning sign. So I would never mm-hmm. give a blanket statement that, oh, everything is okay, because mm-hmm. parents need to educate themselves just like they do about proper nutrition, just like they do about proper hygiene or proper health care and preventive health care measures. They need to educate themselves about proper management of sexuality education messages in the home or outside of the home with their own children. And so that's why I'm advocating that anybody listening who has young children and is feeling in the dark about it, you need to Google around, go to Amazon, go to whatever your local bookstore is, and start reading up in some good books about parent-child communication around sexuality. Mm, That's so helpful. Now, in terms of the whole shame cycle, what would be something, let's say somebody is riddled with shame or they just are suffering silently with it and they realize, my God, this is all about my personal shame that is keeping me from a joyful life, a pleasurable life, a sexually healthy life. What would be an exercise that could help to reduce and take that shame down? What, what's something someone can do that helps that particular problem? Well, I'm going to focus in on one of the um, most cherished exercises in sexology that has to do with body shame. And it's connected to a negative body image issue. And that is to stand in front of a mirror, naked or in your underwear or in a bathing suit, preferably naked, and to look at yourself And take about an hour, if you can, to do this exercise. And look at yourself and talk to yourself in this way. I see, top of my head, I see my hair, and what I love about my hair is, boom. I see my eyes, and what I love about my eyes is, boom. And going down from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet, and really having a conversation with yourself in the mirror is a very powerful de-shaming activity. Another is, um, I'm not advocating this for everybody, but some people really do need to have an advocate. They need to have somebody outside of themselves to help remove that crust of shame. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, some of that comes out of having a clinician like me or someone like me that I've trained to really be that voice of permission. And mm. in, in the training that I offer professionals, both at sexcoachu.com and sexologyu.com, which just opened today, actually, where we train professionals who already have the clinical skills and want to learn the sexological part so they can have that conversation about sex with their patients or their clients. What we teach is that our role in many ways is to normalize and validate. So not saying, you know, this is normal and you, got, you guys aren't having sex enough because it doesn't meet the statistic of normal for couples of your age and location. Forget that. It's normalizing. It's saying, oh, you have dreams about same-sex erotic encounters. Great. How can you use that? Or mm-hmm. someone who has a fetish, for example, the most common fetish is what? Foot fetishism. And so someone who feels so shame-based and so embarrassed and, and really isolated in some ways because he or she, usually he, has a, a fetish about shoes or women's feet. And that's what he needs to become aroused. Instead of looking at that and saying, how do we get rid of that? 
our work is to really de-shame him around that desire and around that arousal cue. Because for some men and women, their fetish is essential for their arousal. So and their relaxation. And relaxation, that's right. So if they can't embrace what that is because of shame, the clinician or the educator needs to be there to help them really restate to themselves without the shame involved. So much of the work that I do is about helping people say different things to themselves. Mm. Oh, that's so perfect. And you would love this. In my book, Feel Good Naked, with every chapter, I give the reader a naked exercise. And it it isn't the head-to-toe mirror work that you just described, but it is being naked with yourself and finding comfort through the particular exercise simply by being alone and with no clothing on. And I yeah. really have found that the feedback that's come from those exercises has been profoundly touching to me and very helpful. So that would actually be another way to help the shame is to try some of these easy na- naked exercises that don't demand too much of what is so painful for many, many people. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so ironic because... As someone who is a sexologist, part of my role is to make suggestions and recommendations for how to open up that erotic container for an individual or a couple and and also to respond to some of the longings or wants of my clients who might say, you know, gee, we're thinking of going to a naturist resort, meaning a nude you know, nude only or clothing optional resort. And uh, we're just, you know, I'm scared. Like, are people going to come on to me? And the, and the hilarious truth is that when we're naked, some of that edge of feeling scared that we're going to be hit on or that there's going to be an over-sexualized energy dissipates immediately because there's almost no sexual energy that runs in most of these family-oriented nude resorts. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I sometimes make the analogy years ago when I was in a health club in a part of California, you know, a typical health club, um, where there's a spa and a pool and exercise room and classes and all that. And we're in our bathing suits in the hot tub, clothed in our bathing suits. And the, the sexual energy, the kind of predatory energy was flowing. And, you know, men were looking at the women like, ooh. And then going to the nudist place, there was none of that. It was like, <laughs> we're just in our bodies. It's so natural to be in our naked self. So there's uh, a huge yeah. shift that can take place in allowing ourselves to be present to being naked with others or even alone in a public setting, appropriate and legal. But there's something so powerful about getting that. And we don't get it as an idea. We get it as an experience. And that's where the true healing comes in. So I I like what you're saying about these exercises. And, you know, you brought up for me some very beautiful memories of my own naked life with the south of France being on the Mediterranean and at first being so nervous about no one wore bathing suits and coming out onto the beach, having that towel or robe, and then taking it off and wanting to just die. And then like five minutes later, really 
feeling good. And then noticing like that I wasn't even, you know, half hour into it, I was running into the water and coming out of the water and nobody was inappropriate or giving you that weird leer you mentioned in the bathing suit the hot tub. And then the other one was Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. And being in that hot tub environment, there was no sexual energy at all. Everybody was relaxing and it was so freeing and surprising all at the same time. Very beautiful feeling. Um, you have a squirrel yeah. and I have a little I have a little barking dog while you have a squirrel and then I, I have a hummingbird so see nature nature has such a more natural way with all of these aspects of being in our animal selves and yeah. I think sexuality is so natural as is nudity but the shame and the mindful ways that we have been not treated well we have been manipulated as opposed to liberated has really done a number on so many people with their sexual lives I mean because mindfulness it's funny mindfulness is a word we use now in the culture so much but you can use mindfulness in a positive way or a negative way and the real the real key is to know the difference especially if you're trying to grow a healthy sexual person absolutely and um I just want to mention something that might be helpful to all of you who are listening. I host a radio show called The Boom Doctors at theboomdoctors.com. And all the shows are archived. And the reason I'm citing this is because I did an interview recently. So it's one of the latest episodes. with um, a, Her name is um, Debbie Ellis. And she's Albert Ellis's widow who Albert Ellis being one of the most famous sex therapists ever and one of the granddaddies of sex therapy. And he, he invented or created this system called REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. And that influenced me greatly in my own development as a clinician. And, and I think that concept of mindfulness is so important and shifting what we're telling ourselves. He also was very funny. He had these expressions like, Stop awfulizing or stop shooting on yourself. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I loved his humor and I really took in his message and his systematic approach to helping clients shift from that self-deprecating, self-harming way of talking to yourself to a self-appreciating, self-loving way of talking to yourself. Because how you deal with you is how you're going to deal with everybody else. So if you're shaming yourself, if you're raging at yourself, I assure you it's going to come out the other side onto others and it's going to ruin your sex life. Absolutely. So there's a mindful self-love that is the goal of this show and everything you, Dr. Patty, have expressed today versus a mindful self-hatred. And you're going to choose as the listener which way to go. You are amazing, by the way. You are so awesome and informative. And before we have to go off the air, how can listeners find you? Let's let's go through all of the ways they can locate and work with you and know more about you. And you also mentioned mentioned that you have something coming up exciting in Europe and we have a lot of people who listen in Europe so take it away with how to find you. Thank you. So my primary website is my name which is drpattybritton.com D-R-P 
P-A-T-T-I-B-R-I-T-T-O-N.com. And it kind of leads you to where I am around the world. And you can sign up for my newsletter. There's a pop-up at the bottom of the homepage that you can sign up for the newsletter. I'd love to have you join me. And one of the most exciting trainings that I do, because it takes people so deeply into who they are essentially and authentically as sexual beings is called aspects. And at expandinprog2017.com or off drpattybritton.com, you can learn all about that training. There is an application you fill out and because we create a very sacred and safe space, but it's a five-day retreat coming up June 4th through 8th outside of Prague at Samasati Retreat, which is a wonderful retreat center. And then I also am leading a a professional training on sensitivity around sexual expression in Poland the next week because Poland is our international training center where we'll be going for the fifth year in a row in Warsaw. So that's really the best way to find me. If, If you're called to learn how to be a sex coach, sexcoachu, the letter u.com would be where you want to flip over and sign up for a consultation, which is complimentary, and it's a whole hour on career development. So that's Dr. enough. Dr. Patty, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. We got to go. I so appreciate your knowledge, and uh, you really do bring home the idea that you complete you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.